0: Hey, let's pray together and we'll dive into God's word together. Father, I I am grateful for common grace abnormalities of the calendar that give us an extra hour of sleep. I'm grateful for that. Personally, I'm grateful for that in the faces of my friends in this room. And I actually ask for more. I ask that you would give us more grace, more than just um, an extra hour of sleep. Would you give us rest for our souls? Would you give us insight into who you are? Would you help us to see? Help us to see the things we don't see. Help us to see the things that we've intentionally blinded our eyes to. Help us to see the revelation of your character and your purposes. And I realize those are big asks. So God, I'm asking you to do something among us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you wake up our hearts? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Would you make us hospitable to the word of God? And would you make me a faithful servant to it? I ask in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Well, if you're new with us, this will be a helpful intro. If you've been with us for a minute, this will be... You know, I guess a better helpful intro, a reminder or something else. We have been for the last two months, I think, in the book of Genesis together, and we've been going very slowly through the first three chapters. One of the many ways I know that is I kicked off this series downtown, and my bookmark is still in the same place in my Bible to preach to you eight weeks later today And and, and what we've seen in these first three chapters is monumental. It's the foundation of everything we know and experience now. We've seen creation orchestrated by a loving, creative, beautiful, infinite, holy God. We've seen humanity lovingly fashioned in the image of God, male and female. We've seen the, the glorious origins of work. And we've realized that work isn't something we do because of the fall. It's something that God designed for us even in the absence of the fall. And we have had to deal with human rebellion, sin, and the curse. It's as if God presented humanity with this elegant, meticulously crafted, glorious work of stained glass. And we've smashed it on the ground. But the tragic thing about it is it's not as if having smashed the glories of creation we can just walk away from them now. We actually carry them with us all the time. It's as if humanity was presented this glorious thing, smashed it, and now has packed it up and brings it with us everywhere we go both in its glory and in its brokenness. Like, that's life for us east of the Garden of Eden. And we begin this morning seeing how humanity navigates life east of Eden. As God banishes our great-grandmother and great-grandfather out of Eden, out of his presence, away from the tree of life, we now see how human beings live apart from the Garden And and what I want us to see is that from this moment in Genesis forward, both in the book of Genesis and throughout the scriptures and throughout our own history, we see humanity moving eastward. And we see this geographically at first in the scriptures, and then we see this as human history goes on symbolically and metaphorically. We are living east of Eden, outside and distant from the original intentions of God for creation and humanity. Listen to how two different scholars put this. The first is Peter Lightheart, and he says this, from Genesis 3, west to east movement is always movement away from God's presence in his house. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden to the east. And when Cain was later cast out, he was sent to the land east of Eden, the men of Babel, The nations that descended from Noah traveled east and settled in the valley of Shinar to build their city and their tower. Eastward movement is always movement away from God. Westward movement is always movement back toward the garden. It's why God in his loving mercy oriented the tabernacle and the temple in the ancient world facing east so that you came in and moved westward reminding you what we were created for and what we longed for. Here's another scholar, John Salehammer. He says, in the Genesis narratives, when people go east, they leave the land of blessing, Eden and the promised land. And they go to a land where their greatest hopes will turn to ruin. Babylon and Sodom. Hey, this is the reality, brothers and sisters, of the life we live now as human beings in exile. East of Eden. Because of the fall and the curse, we live geographically, symbolically, relationally, spiritually, dispositionally distant from what God intended, distant from the original purposes of God for us to live in his presence and delight with him in full communion, free from sin. We now live longing for what God created for us, but disconnected from it. We live Outside of Eden, under the realities of the curse. Cornelius Plantiga, in his book on sin, entitled Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, says that sin is the vandalism of shalom. It is that beautiful, you know, stained glass work of creation that we have vandalized. And we now live with the vandalism always longing for things to be different than the way they are. Am I I alone in that? Like how many times a day are we confronted with the realities of existence east of Eden? How often do we find ourselves in a moment of vulnerability, in a moment of honesty, in a moment of pain, crying out and saying, God, this is not the way it's supposed to be. We see the origin of that longing right here and how we're navigating life east of Eden. I I just want to ask you three questions this morning, and I want you to hold these questions in your mind and in your heart. It's not as if you could answer them quickly, but I I want you to hold them as we walk through these vignettes in Genesis because we're going to read more than verses 22 to 24 that were read, but I want to ask you these three questions. Question number one What do you personally do with the longing? Like when you encounter the gaps between the world as it is and the world as you actually know it should be, what do you do with that longing? Question number two How do you live under the curse? There are burdens that we bear east of Eden. And I want to to know what you do as a means of coping with those burdens. And the third question for you is like, what do we do to experience or take hold of the promises that God offers in the curse? Because he doesn't just curse humanity because of our sin. He actually tells us that there's hope for us east of Eden. There's hope for us under the curse. So my question for you is, how do you take hold of those promises? Or in another another way to phrase it, I guess, is as you live east of Eden under the curse, how do you get back? Like how do we get back to what God intended for us? And I want you just to consider those questions and consider the realities of your own life as we narrate three vignettes, the first vignettes that happen like as humans are banished from the garden, as this eastward journey from Eden begins. And we're not going to do a detailed exegetical dive. I just want to highlight some elements from three snapshots for you. We're gonna look again at the verses that were read for us this morning, verses 22 to 24 of Genesis 3. Then we're gonna fly over the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter four. And then we're gonna look at the genealogy from Adam to Noah in Genesis chapter five. We're gonna look at these three chapters really, really quickly. I'd like the record to show that when we first broke up the preaching calendar, I fought for us doing four sermons on death, which probably was not a great idea as we count down 50 days to Christmas, but the great esteemed Reverend David Adair said, I don't think four sermons on death would be good, but I'd like the record to show that the guy that wanted to preach four sermons on Genesis 3, 22 to 24 is now preaching one sermon on Genesis 3 to 5, so let's, let's do that as quickly as we possibly can, and uh, my, my protest stands on the, on the record. Hey, but, but as you hold those questions, like real questions, and I pray you take with you today and process tomorrow and are considering in your community groups months to come. As you hold those questions, I, I want us to, to note two things we're going to see as we walk through these three, these three vignettes in Genesis. Number one, I want you to see the potency and pervasiveness of sin. Sin is potent. And we tell ourselves lies and say we can just dabble with sin. But it's not a thing. It's not like an action outside of us. It's a a power. Sin is potent and it's pervasive. And if you want another P, it's predatory. I want you to see that as we go forward. And then I also want you to see the grace and loving kindness of God. God is from the moment he banishes humanity from the garden, even in that moment, extending to us his grace. And loving kindness. I think Sally Lloyd Jones captures the essence of this beautifully in the Jesus Storybook Bible. I thought I'd share this with you this morning. She says this You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him lost children yearning from their home and we see the banishment of humanity from their home in genesis chapter 3 i just want to note for you that in verse 22 to 24 banishing adam and eve from the garden enacts the means by which the death penalty connected in the curse comes God has pronounced a death penalty over all of humanity and the means by which that penalty will be carried out is through the banishment from the garden, specifically the tree of life. And it's worth noting that God doing this, God banishing Adam and Eve from the garden is not some fearful act of God as if he's afraid, oh man, I don't want them to like take hold of something that I don't have. It's a merciful act of God. It's a merciful act of God, and here's why. Because imagine if we just had to deal with the complexities, the catastrophes, the hideousness of sin, and there was no end to it, ever. Imagine if we just had to look at one another in the pain of loss, in the pain of betrayal, in the pain of death, in the pain of sickness, and we had to just say to one another, well, this is the way it is forever, Death gives us this unbelievably kind thing to say, this is not the way it is forever. Indy Wilson in his book, Death by Living, uses this analogy of running track and a coach on the side of the track as an image for the kindness of God in instituting death upon the human race. And he says, imagine if you're running a, a mile relay or a you know, 5,000 or a 10,000 meter run. You have your coach on the side kindly announcing to you as each lap goes on, hey, only three laps to go. Only two laps to go. You're doing great. This is your last lap. And Wilson says, can you imagine if your coach just stood on the side of the track As every muscle in your body cramps, as you're winded and in pain, and your coach with folded arms says, this never ends. (laughs) Death is God's kindness to us. Death is God's kindness to us. But we see now, from this moment forward, humanity bears the pains of death such that the first vignette of life outside the garden ends in murder. So humans are moving forward, eastward now. And look at Genesis chapter 4. Humanity does move on, not just eastward from the garden, but moves on in terms of civilization because Adam and Eve have their first children. And upon the birth of her first son, Eve celebrates. There's a hope in Eve, where she's looking back to the promise God made her, that the the end of the curse and the end of the serpent will come from the fruit of the womb of Eve. And you get the hopefulness of Eve celebrating that in the birth of her first child. And then we see the birth of her second child. And then the first family we see east of Eden struggles with all the same issues your family and mine deals with. Jealousy and envy and hatred. I won't get into all the details of Cain and Abel, but what's significant to us is we see Cain, the elder brother, angry at his younger brother and angry at God. And in the midst of his anger, God comes to him. God pursues him. Not to smite him, not to rub his nose in something, but to invite him to see something, to invite him to look upward. Look at verse 6 of Genesis chapter 4. The Lord says to Cain, Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? God literally says to Cain, what's wrong with your face? (laughs) Have you ever said that to your kids? When you see that look, and each one of your kids has a signature look, you know? It's like, man, what happened to your face? God says to Cain lovingly, hey, What happened to your face? Let me share this with you. Like, oh my gosh, if there's anything you grasped this morning, I think this may be the thing. In the Bible and in your own life, when God comes to you and asks you a question, he's not looking for information. When God comes to you and asks you a question, he's not trying to see something. He's trying to help you see something. God knows everything. There's nothing that escapes his periphery. He sees all, he knows all, and God doesn't need any help understanding the motivations of your heart. When God comes to you and asks you a question, he's not trying to get info on the motivations of your heart. He's trying to help you see something about the motivations of your heart. Oh, and could, could we be the kind of people that when the Lord God asks us a question, maybe sometimes it's directly through His word, maybe sometimes it's through a friend, maybe sometimes it's through the prayers or the ministry of someone else, when God asks us a question, we actually receive His mercy in that and pay attention to what He's pointing at. But we see in this moment the potency of sin. God invites Cain to see. Hey, Cain, this isn't just like a bad day you're having. This isn't just that your brother always gets the good things and you always get the bad things. This isn't just like, oh, the younger always gets the favor. Hey, Cain, this is something about you, the Lord God is saying to him, and it's powerful. It's not just powerful, God says. It's predatory. This is verse seven of Genesis four. Yeah. Hey, sin is crouching at the door of Cain, God says to him, and its desire is to devour you. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God is telling Cain, this isn't just some story you're telling yourself about your brother. This is a power that's ready to utterly devour and destroy you. I'll make a confession. This is a low-key joy for me, like a guilty pleasure. Anyone familiar with the Instagram account? I think they have a YouTube page as well. Nature is metal. You should be if you're not. Let me tell you, for those of you who are unenlightened, what nature is metal is all about. Nature is Metal features videos of adorable little bunnies, little puppies and small little cuddly furry things being utterly annihilated by lions and crocodiles and cougars and eagles and hawks. No, I don't follow you on Instagram. I follow Nature is Metal on Instagram you should go home and gather your family around your iPad today and look at it. All joking aside, because the Bible says it would explain to you way more about sin than we try to explain to ourselves about sin when we try to round off the sharp edges of it. Like, God says sin is way more like the lion crouching in the brush, getting ready to destroy the baby animal, than it is about something else you say it is when you make excuses for it in your life. Oh, you don't understand. Like, work is really stressful right now. No, no, no. That, that, is, that is a lie you're telling yourself about a power that seeks to devour you. What is it about us that we always try to make our sin so nuanced and complicated? Oh, you don't understand. A lot of backstory here, a lot of explaining to do. When it comes to your friends or your roommates or your spouse or your parents, their sin is really black and white. It's always our sin. Oh, you don't understand, God. This takes a lot of explaining. And God says, it doesn't take any explaining. This sin desires to destroy you. God's saying, hey, sin is potent. Potent. And it is powerful, but you must master it, Cain. You see, in the face of sin, we always have a choice, always. In the face of sin, we always have a choice, always. Cain could have heard the word of the Lord, paid attention to what God was inviting him to pay attention to, and see the destructive, corrosive, devouring, predatory power of sin. He, he, he could have turned, but instead he harbors the sin, and he lets it harden him. So sin hardens Cain. He goes from lying to God about his attitude to killing his brother because of his attitude to lying to God about killing his brother. What causes quarrels among you, the brother of Jesus asks in James 4. Is it not this, that you want stuff and you don't get it, so you murder people? You desire things and you can't find a way to take hold of them so you fight with other people. This is the source of conflict. This is the source of murder, says the word of God. What is it that Cain wanted? I don't know. Approval? Acceptance? Comfort? Power? Luxury? He wanted to get his way? I don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us what the scripture does tell us is he didn't get what he wanted and so he killed for it. And me and you do the same thing all the time. Me and you do the same thing all the time. You may do it with words. You may not have been led to physical acts of violence yet, but it all starts in the same place. And the word of the Lord to us this morning from the life of Cain and Abel is sin is powerful and it is predatory. Listen to what Tim Keller says about this. He says sin has an abiding, growing presence in your life. If you commit sin, sin is not over. Sin is not simply an action, it's a force. It becomes, it's a power. When you do sin, it's not now over, but it actually becomes a presence in your life. It takes shape, a shadow shape, and it stays with you, and it begins to affect you. Where is sin presently? crouching at the door of your life? Honest question. Where is the Spirit of God right now inviting you to be honest with the thing that you're calling an occasional reality, a trivial thing? Because Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 to 10, you reap what you sow. You can't can't just play with sin and feed it like some stray cat and it not take over your life. Paul again says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24, that some people's sins eat them now, and some people's sins eat them later. But we see sin grow in the heart of Cain, from envy and disappointment, to jealousy, to rage, to murder, to believing he could lie to God about murder. We don't just see sin grow in the heart of Cain, we see sin increase and grow in potency across the scope of humanity. So when we get to chapter 5, this first vignette outside the garden has now grown to generations of people living east of Eden. And I think there's two things the author really wants us to note in Genesis chapter 5. The first thing is the author wants us to see the connection genealogically from Adam to Noah. He wants us to see when we get into the life of Noah that Noah didn't come from nowhere. We see all of Noah's families or at least that generational heads listed in the previous chapter. And we also see this, that from Cain to Noah what has grown is the power of death in the life of humanity. And the way we see the power of death is, the power of sin is, we see everyone dying. Now, if you're anything like me, you come to a genealogy in the Bible and you're like, yes, I skip it and check it off in my Bible reading calendar. I'm done for the day. But God put this here for a reason. He put it here for us to read it, and to pay attention. And if you read this, we see the effects of sin. We see life east of Eden manifesting itself primarily in the phrase repeated eight times, and he died, and he died, and he died. What is life like east of Eden? Well, under the curse, outside the garden, people die. What are you doing with that? How are you making sense of that? What are you doing with the longing you carry for things to not be the way they are? How do you deal with the realities of sin and death? We see death reigns. But what I love is if you read closely, the author is telling us that death is not the final answer for the perils of life outside of Eden. How how do I see that or where do I see that? Look in verse 24 of Genesis chapter 5 with me. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Is that weird to anybody else? I mean, we're going to see some weird stuff coming up in Genesis, and I'm not going to be the one to get to tell you about the Nephilim. But, But right here, we have... Everybody in this dude's family has died. The the thing uniting Enoch to his grandparents and great-grandparents is everyone died. And then we get to Enoch, and the, the author of Genesis says, and Enoch walked with God, which is what you're made for. He's telling us about what we're made for. Enoch walked with God, and then he wasn't for a thousand reasons I have questions about and don't understand. But if nothing else, God is reminding us death does not have the final say. God does. And then the author of Genesis tells us one more thing about death not having the final say and the curse not having the final say. Look in verse 28 of chapter five with me. When Lamech... I bet that guy spent his whole life telling people, no, it's Lamech, you call me Lamech. So there's a people divided. When Lamech, Lamech, had lived 182 years, he fathered his son, and he called his name Noah. Hey, Lamech, why'd you name your son Noah? He says, oh, for a really specific reason. Because I want us to remember that out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, he's gonna fulfill his promises and bring us Relief. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. The name of Noah reminds us that east of Eden, the curse and death do not have the final word for us, that God will make a way to get us back. So here's my question for you when you deal with the burdens of the curse and the groaning of life outside of Eden, how are you right now trying to get back? Where are you overworking or performing or posturing yourself in particular ways, hoping that through the esteem and the applause of other people, you can get back to the way things are supposed to be? Where are you trying to coach your kids and orient their performance so that with just a few more extra coaching sessions outside their leagues, they can be the kind of athlete that you never were, and through their performance, you can get back to the way things are supposed to be. I, maybe some of you are you 're not trying to perform your way back to Eden or perform your way back to the way things are supposed to be you 're trying to numb yourself out of the pain of how they are. How many of you right now, like this week, have snuck drinks at home, at work, in your car as a means of deadening yourself? to the pain of sin and the realities of the curse, trying to just not feel the burdens of life east of Eden. I have two friends in the last six months have made shipwreck of their life with alcohol and no one close to them even knew they drank. It's like, hey, where did that come from? It's like sneaking drinks. Maybe you're not sneaking drinks Maybe you're sneaking purchases. I had a friend last week text me after OU lost to Kansas, which we thought it was gonna get better. We were wrong. <laughs> OU has only traveled further east of the garden. We saw that this week. He, he texted me after they lost to Kansas, and he says, if you need me, I will be sad shopping on Amazon for the next few hours. I didn't hear a word from him yesterday. Who knows what he's done? I had a friend several years ago whose wife was in the hospital, and when I went to visit him at his house after she'd gotten released from the hospital, he said, can I show you the new bike I bought? And I was like, whoa, 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 I'm coming to check on your wife. How did you buy a bike? And yes, I do want to see it. (laughs) Another sermon for another day. He said, I said, why did you buy this bike? He said, because it was in the middle of the night, and her O2 sats were bad, and everything else looked terrible, and I was afraid. Where are you, proverbially, buying bikes, trying to get back, sipping drinks, trying to get back, working late, trying to get back, posturing things in your life so it will appear to other people that you found the way back? And here's the bad news for you. You can't get back on your own. There's nothing you can do to get back on your own. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is God himself came all the way into our world to bring us back. He could have just dusted his hands from us and said, it's what you want, fine, have it, enjoy your life east of Eden. But God came so that we who were sinful rebels and vandals Could be brought back into the glories of his presence. And he tells us in Revelation that it's even more glorious than Eden was in the beginning. It's almost like he had a plan. And the tree of life that he tells us in verse 22 of Genesis 3 that our great grandparents were banished from features centrally in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation chapter 22 the tree of life with its leaves bearing fruit and bringing about the healing of the nations. You cannot get back on your own, but Jesus can bring you back. Pray with me. Jesus, that's my yearning, is that we would actually like feel the tension of that, and we would experience not just the bankruptcy of our own westward efforts, but we'd experience the predatory and corrosive nature of them. God, help us in this moment to be deathly aware of the power of sin in our lives and to be humbled and overcome with joy when we realize that there is something more powerful than our sin. It's the loving purposes of an infinite and holy God manifest for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.